Hey, yo, what's good, Internet? It's the Harvester Colin Atrophy, and I'm so happy to welcome you to episode 27 of Radio Harvester. It's a great guest. We have a great conversation, and uh, I'll get to that in a second. got to make a quick announcement, which is that I've got an email newsletter. You should sign up. It's called Life Harvester. I do reviews of all kinds of stuff. Uh, for instance, uh, Gaz Demo, Riverdale, the show, uh, Cardi B music video, some gay murder mysteries that I read, the Bobka from Trader Joe's, uh, what it felt like to have Becca tell me that she thinks I'm a different Golden Girls character than I think I am. You get the drift. The drift? You get the gist. Uh, it's cute, uh, fun, and I think you'll like it. And I'll put a link to sign up in the uh, episode description. Um, as for the guest, this month we have Tamara Santibanez, my old friend, very important tattooer, multimedia artist. We talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about um, growing up punk in and brown in Athens, Georgia. Coming to New York, being straight edge, um, activism, getting into tattooing. And I think something that I like about this interview is that there are various points where we lightly disagree with each other about stuff, and it's fine. And I think there's a thing where people want to agree all the time or like have everyone know the right thing to say. And like sometimes you don't, and sometimes your friends challenge you, and that's why you have old friends, so that they can lovingly tell you when you said a fucked up thing. And I really appreciate that. And I hope that you enjoy hearing it in this interview. All right. Enjoy. A lot of your creative process and what and what to you is your creative output isn't necessarily the physical things that you tangibly make. Right. But because people will be like, oh, how's your how's your work going? And I'm like, awesome. I have been looking at so much art. I just went to this great talk the other day. I'm reading a ton. I'm thinking a lot about what I want to make. I have all these great ideas. Uh-huh. But it's like, when was the last time I made that painting? Or I haven't actually made any of the things that I'm engaging with in my mind. But to me, that feels as real yeah, as bringing sure. it into the world. It's part of the process. Yeah, so so it's like, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking about it so much. I'm like really marinating on new things I want to make or concepts that I'm wanting to unpack. Or, um, and talking about that is a way of, of making that real and yeah. is re- a really important part of the process, I think. But but I also have been, I mean, it's it's so funny that, that we're doing this interview and that you, you mentioned that because... Um, Last week, I just went to an open house for uh, an MFA program that I'm going to apply to. Oh, no shit. Cool. Yeah. Um, for, to, to get a master's in oral history. No fucking way. Yeah. Whoa. This yeah. is really on point then. Yeah. So it's, it's had me thinking quite a lot since I went there. So, the, so it's at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and the program seems really exciting because they, <clears throat> they talk a lot about the ethics of interviewing, about like the, like the social justice import, like, uh, aspects of recording otherwise lost or underrepresented narratives, right. um, about you know, the power dynamics inherent in interviewing, about the, the moral responsibility to your interview subjects. Yeah, for um, sure. Because there's, there's so much of that um, that's inherent in that, in that process. And it's really had me thinking a lot about um, how to be an effective interviewer, how to be an effective conversationalist. Mm-hmm. Um, because in tattooing, I, I just basically just interview people all day long and have these really deep exchanges with folks. Yeah. Um, to the point 
that I've started to think of it as a type of social work almost um, because of like the people that come to me and like sort of the, the background reasons that they have for getting getting the, the tattoo in, in particular and just tattooed in general uh-huh. um, and holding space for that for them um, even though it can often be really wearing for yeah. me um, and so and so I've been thinking a lot about I mean they, they were speaking about um, saying you know when you're when you're interviewing people they had us doing this exercise and they were like don't ask necessarily the the facts the cold hard facts right. of what you want to know don't ask like oh how old were you what year was that just ask more experiential questions or try to draw out what the what they were feeling what they were seeing like yeah. the sensory the sense memories and the information will come as part of that um, so i've really been just had that in the forefront of my mind for the last week and it's been making me listen to interviews a lot more critically Uh um, just more conscious of how I talk to my friends like if I'm catching up with somebody I haven't seen in a while I'm I'm trying to ask them questions a little bit differently to like get a better answer in a way yeah for sure yeah it's good practice yeah yeah when I started doing the podcast like I actually was hanging out with Ben Trogdon yesterday and he was the first episode Mm -hmm. and I was like I'd really like to not today we went to my um my old neighbor's grandson's fourth birthday. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> yesterday, I was like, not today, but Ben, I'd really like to redo that interview sometime because I did such a terrible job. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I was just like, hey, uh, where are you from? When did you become punk? Like, that was the beginning. And that's yeah. like, that is kind of the, the like overarching theme of the show is I kind of talk to people about um, like what their roots in punk are, but then... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's less about like fixating on like ah, and then I went to this historically relevant show in this place and more about like what did you glean from it and then what is your adulthood like now and how do those um, which of those ethics or um, strictures did you shed and which do you think followed you into your like creative life as a cool grown up because I think punk has been such a hindrance to my success as an adult in many Mm -hmm. ways but also so um so fucking important to like keeping me on my toes and making me feel confident and comfortable stepping into spaces mm-hmm. that I might not have otherwise. Yeah, and I'm I'm so happy to talk about that because I think about it constantly, and I've yeah. also like and it's and it's funny, especially with tattooing, because it's like you know I'm at the shop however many times a day, talking to however many people a right. day, and if they're people that I get you know get into any sort of deep conversation with, if I have one thing on my mind that week. I'm making everyone talk about it or kind of surveying the people that I'm encountering to be like, what do you think about this? Like, yeah, of course. What's, um, and so punk, punk and current relationships to punk as an adult is a, is, has been something I've been talking about a lot recently because it's something that I've been investigating a lot in my work, um, in my visual artwork. And, yeah. um, and I had this moment. So I, I had, I don't know if you remember Emily Stebbins, um, of course I do. Yeah, so I she was in town doing a reading recently. She's one of my oldest friends, and we met because of punk right. and being too punk for everyone else yeah. in college. So um, we were catching up, and we were sort of talking about it because she's doing all of this radical environmentalist work, mm-hmm. and I remember her being this very like you know vegan Earth Liberation Front kind of kind of punk kid um, that I also was at the time, and just thinking about that as the origin and what she's doing now as yeah. as the current I- incarnation of that. And I was saying um, that the ways that we talk about our punk selves when we were young, it's always so de- self-deprecating and it's always with this touch of like irony or humor or, and 
And I really want to be able to shed that because punk taught me so many important things. I'm like, yeah, it's fucking goofy. Like, yeah, we can laugh at it. But, you know, I had this moment when I was walking down the street the other day, for example. It was like seven in the morning and I was getting coffee. And I was like, damn, my street smells like fucking shit. It smells so bad out here. Why does it reek like this? And I saw that all of the compost had been picked up and all the bins were open. And I was like, oh, that's why it smells so bad. And my like sleepy, like caffeine deprived brain was like, oh, of course it smells that bad. Like that's not real compost. You need like a ratio of dried, great, like green and brown (laughs) organic matter to like the food scraps. And it needs to be aerated in turn and like have some sort of like organisms to help decompose for it to not smell like this. And then I was like, it's so early in the morning. Why do I even know that? Where did that yeah, yeah, come yeah. from? And I was like, oh, punk, of course, right? Yeah. Um, did you ever have those worms in any of the houses you lived in? I don't know if we had... I don't think we had worms. You know the worms I'm talking about? Yeah. Like the New York City apartment compost worms that you keep in a big coffee can? <laughs> yeah. No, we didn't have the worms, but we did have composting yeah. in those, like, those bins, you know. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many things that are like, or even like camping, for example. Like, uh-huh. I grew up in somewhere pretty suburban. I was not really yeah, you're growing from up. Athens, right? Yeah, yes. But I was like, I'm pretty good at, at camping, and I credit punk with that because, of, <laughs> you know, being able to to like rough it in whatever yeah, way, sure. or like being able to be inventive and like have these basic skills, survival skills, because <laughs> of punk and like bug out bag preparedness. Yeah, for real. Yeah, Becca's still trying to convince me that I like camping. Because I, like, I went camping once in high school, and then all the other times I've ever slept in the woods have been, like, the median of the highway or, like, a (laughs) train yard, you know? Uh And it just, like, it sucks. Like, it's no fun. And she's like, no, I swear to God, like, if we go into an actual beautiful forest with our dog and a tent, and you're not sleeping, like, on a tarp in between two lanes of, like in between eight lanes of interstate, you'll probably <laughs> really enjoy it. Like, it's probably pretty beautiful, Colin. You might be might be surprised by how much you like it. I used to always say I hated the woods. Or I, I used to always say I hated nature because I, mm-hmm. I thought I hated the woods. And Caroline would always be like, you know, the beach is nature, right? And then I'd be like, oh, maybe I don't, maybe I just hate the forest. But now I like... <laughs> I hate the forest. Well, now I have... I, <laughs> yeah. I'm just like a, I'm just a dick. You know what I mean? I'm just like a New York City asshole sometimes. What People forest? from New York hate bugs. They like to yeah, say I they hate, hate bugs. bugs. That's the thing is that yeah. I hate bugs. I don't. I don't mind the trees. I don't mind the dirt. I just don't like the bugs. I don't like the bugs all over me. But what about rats and cockroaches? Those are fine. <laughs> Those are fine. I woke. I had these. Uh, God rest his soul. Salvatore the cat passed away last January. Uh, his sister Growler. She's still alive. She's 15 years old. She has eight teeth left. <laughs> um, the two of them were siblings. They lived with me for through all of my like uh the worst i ever got with my alcoholism all of in every apartment i ever lived in as an adult and they would leave me these perfectly bisected halves of cockroaches on the pillow all the time i'd wake up in the morning and there'd just be like a perfect perfect single like surgically cut who's that dickhead artist that they stole all his uh ideas from for the cell you know that movie, The Cell? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know I'm talking about? The guy that cut up animals? That piece of shit? What's his name? I don't remember. Doesn't matter. Some British guy. Uh, it was like his work. Okay. Like, just like surgically bisected cockroach just so sitting bizarre. on my pillow waiting for me. Because it was a gift from the, the creatures who, who I tended to. Mm-hmm. I love a cockroach, but like um, a beetle or like uh, <laughs> mosquitoes? <laughs> Creepy crawly centipedes? 
ooh, no, no, no. But then again, I got this dog now, and I live in Pittsburgh, and I go in the woods like three times a week. Yeah. And I'm starting to love the woods, so maybe... Okay, I'm happy to hear yeah, that. Yeah, we're onto something. I'm very rambly, because this is my first cup of coffee, too, so this is... Uh, please forgive me that I keep just going on these giant tangents. That no, it's nice, to, it's nice to hear these, actually. Yeah, I just like catching up with you. It's yeah, been a while. Yeah, I know. Um, I'll like turn it into something that sounds good. The, um, But yeah, so you credit punk with camping. You credit punk with... Uh, knowing what compost is yeah I think I think about DIY yeah a lot because I think in a lot of ways I got into punk because of DIY uh-huh. um, not the other way around and because when I was young I was very into making things I made all my own clothes and how young are we talking when you made all your own clothes uh, maybe like late middle school early high school what was that like with your peers um I so okay so my youth was kind of built for awkwardness because I was 2 years younger than everyone in my grades. Um you got I, accelerated in school? Yeah. Okay. So I I mean think about it like puberty is such a big part of how I'm like it, there's a sort of like a solidarity in puberty where like everyone's tormenting each other but everyone's going through it at the same time but I was not going through it. I didn't get like I didn't get like puberty body parts until my freshman year of college, which was very confusing for me. Fuck, that is confusing. So, um, so everyone else was, I, I was just felt young and, and like a baby compared yeah. to everyone else that was accelerating rapidly into adulthood. So, um, so yeah, I guess when I was in, how old are you usually when you're a freshman in high school, like 14 or something? 14, I think, yeah. So I was like 12, 13. That's insane. And... So then, yeah, so then I really, really tried to fit in a lot uh-huh. in my middle school years. Didn't really go that great. Um, but then when I got to high school, I kind of tried for a while, and then I was like, no, you know what? There's lots of artsy kids here. I really yeah. don't need to be doing this. I'm going to, I just want to make clothes. I want to learn fashion design. Um, and then I think my my look got like more punk and more avant-garde from there. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in a place that was, um, I mean, it was the South, but I mean, you, you're familiar with Athens. It yeah, has yeah, kind I've of this there. like indie rock, like grunge legacy. Yeah, um, R.E.M., right? Yeah. Who else is from there? Is uh, the there? B-52s are from there. Right. Neutral Milk Hotel is from there. Um, who else is from there? Neutral Milk Hotel aside, this is like the big things from Athens are also like pretty gay. Which yeah. seems cool. Yeah, and I think for some reason, maybe it's because of my age and just sort of like the na- the broader progression of gay rights and gay visibility, like queer visibility since then. But when I was young, I definitely did not have a sense that I was queer. Uh-huh. Um, I think in a lot of ways because it was just treated as so outside the realm of possibility. Sure. Um, like we all understood that there were queer people and like gay yeah, people yeah. but there was no one in my immediate community that was openly gay or, or queer and like my younger brother included actually he's gay and he didn't come out until after he moved away from Athens um, and so then we had this moment where we were like I was like yeah me too yeah. you know um, so uh, so yeah I think that in Athens there was a lot of that stuff but it didn't necessarily feel that accessible to me sure. or that in- influential to me um or access, yeah, accessible, I guess. Um, so, but I think a big part of what shaped my relationship to where I grew up um, was 
And, and this is something I'm still trying to understand now as an yeah. adult, and I went back at the beginning of the year to kind of try to unpack this a little bit more, uh-huh. but was just growing up mixed race in a place where that was pretty uncommon and uh-huh. being Latinx in a place where that was pretty uncommon. Yeah. Um, you know, my, the demographics in my high school was pretty evenly split between black and white kids, and um, there was a pretty, like, very, very small number of, like, other other right. ethnicities and races there. Um, so... So I definitely felt very whitewashed by the people around me uh-huh. and didn't really feel like outside of my home I had a place that I was like visible as Latinx or like Chicanx. Um, and so I think I had like a lot of anger about that that yeah, I couldn't sure. quite name at the time. Um, I felt super angry when I lived there. I like hated frat boys so much. There's a huge college culture yeah. there. I like really hated that. And that's part, a big part of why I was straight edge at the time was because there was so much football culture and um, and like like the, what, the things that go along with that, right? Like college party yeah. culture, like keg parties, sure, red cup, beer pong type of thing. That's so funny to me because in the 90s in New York, all the straight edge kids wore varsity jackets and looked like a football team. And it was like, <laughs> yeah. I knew kids that didn't do drugs because, like, their mom were a crackhead or whatever, but, mm-hmm. like, were still, like, I'm not straight edge. Like, I will never drink or do a drug, but I am not straight edge because that's, like, straight white boys that wear a football jacket and, like, beat up our friends. Yeah. Um, so it's really funny that, that, like, in Athens, whatever the, like, game of subcultural telephone, how things <laughs> right. get translated, right. you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's so cool. Yeah, and so so then I lived. I moved to Savannah. I lived in Savannah for a year. And, no shit. Is that where you started college? Um, yeah, I went to SCAD for a year, and um, and that was the first time I really felt like involved in a punk scene. And uh-huh. Savannah is pretty. I mean, it's pretty small, and it's the kind of place where so many different people will go to shows just because it's like the one thing that to, to do. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, there was like a what big year metal was this, scene. Roughly. I guess that was maybe like two thousand and four. Okay. Yeah, and um, and so then the there was a big metal scene there at the time, like Kailesa, Baroness, Municipal Waste would come there often yeah. and play. So like that was the kind of that was the kind of scene. Um, uh-huh. Also, a lot of like folk punk. <laughs> I was just talking last night about the unfortunate legacy of folk punk. I, you know, I tried to revisit some folk punk recently, yeah. and I found it un- totally unlistenable. <laughs> yeah, it's really it does not it didn't translate like whatever joyous kind of transcendence and like anti-capitalist fervor we were all feeling when we were like let's unplug all the instruments <laughs> we like after the fall of civilization we'll still be able to rock or whatever is like just feels so dated to me in this way that like even the casualties doesn't yeah and and funnily enough i feel kind of similarly about like um like we're gonna play with generators in the woods style black metal, which I think came from like a similar anti-capitalist impulse. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's something about it that I don't know if it necessarily holds up. Maybe because the collapse has not has not happened quite yet. But uh, and it's maybe also we'll, maybe we'll get it once once the electricity is gone. But maybe we all got a better critique than like we need to hasten the collapse of civilization because we realized that. Hastening the collapse That's of like civilization. for white people? Yeah, like, leads to the deaths of, uh, like, non-white people all over the world so much faster. Yeah. You know what I mean? Than if we, like, figure out a way to keep the power grid 
running but not have it be fucking awful you know like I think we just all got a little more creative and realized that <laughs> I uh, hope so yeah. I hope that's what people have if I hope people have come around to that um, critique of primit- primitivism I actually re- recently did like a Google dive of revisiting all of the old like anarcho-primitivist authors I was reading at the time when I was young and I was like woof this is really bleak. Not surprise. I mean, not surprisingly, because right. those cr- those critiques are so deeply flawed um, and so problematic in so many ways. But yeah, for sure. Um, but I was like, damn, every one of these people is like a, a turf and like yep. a rapist and like very racist. Also, yeah. I mean, I remember I had a friend that was involved, like deeply involved in the. Um, it doesn't matter what region uh, of Earth First mm-hmm. shit in America, and. We were hanging out on a roof in South Brooklyn one time, drinking some 40s or whatever, a million years ago. And he was like, yeah, my friend has been selling guns to white supremacists. And I was like, that's weird. Why? And he was like, well, you know, he figures they also want to destroy the government. Oh, my God. And so we can all destroy the government together. And then when the government's gone, then we'll just kill them. That is and my most hated approach to the concept of revolution. Is like we'll all revolt together and then sort it out afterwards. I mean, I'm I'm okay with that. With like the anarchists and Marxists can sort it out <laughs> afterwards or whatever. Right, right. But like, yeah, no, that's not our like. Those people are not. But then if you look at those are not comrades. Yeah, but there's always been a strain of um, of white nationalism in eco activism. Mm-hmm. That's been, I think, getting more prominent these past few years. I, I, just, I see that for sure. I mean, there is so many, there are so many blurred lines where this, you know, where this Venn diagram of ideologies begins to overlap. Yeah. Um, and it makes me see why it's not that uncommon for people to move from one side of the spectrum to the other. Yeah, for um, sure. In both directions, I think. But it is very uh, concerning to me. I mean, it, it makes me obviously feel that it's necessary to, to have like a very very specific uh yeah approach to our to the critiques that we're making articulated about. practice yeah. yeah the yeah but it's like you know i think like um like veganism in some ways at its heart is a purity movement you mm-hmm. know what i mean and like so was straight edge or whatever so right. so is punk in some ways mm-hmm. even even like punk that's about destroying your body with uh, like sniffing glue and banging your head <laughs> against a brick wall or whatever is still like there's like a um, emotional or like there's like a purity or authenticity involved in your engagement with the mm-hmm. community like all these things are these purity movements and there's not that the line between that and like getting into some bobo racial purity bullshit is like just not that they're not that different if you take out the um kind of markers right totally and that's why it's so crucial to center the voices of queer and people of color and and trans folks in these critiques because they are people who've like never been afforded the luxury of purity and like have also um you know and i think like with queer critiques especially it's it's so important to constantly be trying to like queer notions of what is correct like trying to like i mean that's how i feel about straight edge in a lot of ways i mean i i mean i'm sure people will hate this but i i kind of identify as straight edge still to this day like i had my you know i had to stand with drinking um when i first went to college when i first moved to new york but i stopped drinking when i was 20 so i've been sober for 11 years now yeah um and it took a while but but 
I start I partially started to identify as straight edge again and kind of reclaim that that label because the people around me who were straight edge were all straight white boys and I was like I feel like I need to insert myself in this just to like make you guys mad because I deserve to be here yeah. you don't like that um, but I'm gonna like make space for what my my embodiment of that is and um, and hopefully try to expand the definition of what that can look like um, I don't know if that's that constructive necessarily like if straight edge needs to be rehabilitated in that way but I but I do think that like you know I would encounter all these all the all this resistance from people who were like oh you take tinctures that's not straight edge because there's alcohol and I'd be like I think taking herbal remedies is much more straight edge than taking like a Tylenol um, yeah. or you know I felt like people's critiques of um, you know the, the ways that they tried to like pick apart like the minutiae of what is and is not straight edge really missed the bigger picture of like um capitalism like pharmaceutical corporations like right. global like glo- like socio-political like global issues of dr- drugs and like how they move through the world um and through the economy and like impact yeah. people who are like not white people living in urban areas um and and so like today i mean even today like Secretly, I feel like very militant in some ways because um, because yeah, I do have a lot of issues with with drugs. I have yeah. a lot of issues with drugs like like weed and cocaine and like who's allowed to use those and not face consequences for it. Uh-huh. Who's allowed to purchase those things without thinking about where like what kind of violence their money is going towards sustaining. Yeah. Um, oh, not yeah. thinking about the consequences of like American intervention on. Um, in, as far as like the war on drugs is concerned in our country and in other Central and South American countries. Um, and the Middle East, if you're talking about heroin, yes. a lot of the poppies come from like Afghanistan shit. Right, right. And also the ways that um, that addiction really disproportionately um, affects people people of color, Native American communities. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so like secretly, I have a lot of really, really strong feelings ag- against the drug and alcohol use, but like, in my daily life, I'm pretty chill, and yeah. and I also did recently come to a, um, this sort of identity crossroads, you know, with like my queerness and my straight edge, or like my sobriety, whatever. I, I don't really know. I sure. tend to use those interchangeably, but I was like, can I use poppers and still be straight edge? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> the fucking the eternal question <laughs> that's um yeah i mean i don't know long story short i do poppers now sometimes cool. yeah that's fine and I, mean, I feel good about it i don't think that's problematic <laughs> but the yeah i mean i'm in i'm in aa i'm very pro other people doing whatever drugs they want i mm-hmm. like truly have like maybe just like a unrefined we're all anarchists here like I believe in personal autonomy yeah. more than I believe in my own preferences kind of mm-hmm. feeling on that but um, but I I know so many people who are like have worked programs or are still currently working mm-hmm. programs who are like yeah just don't tell my sponsor I do poppers you know what I mean like it's <laughs> yeah. like that's a pretty yeah, common yeah. this is my one exception yeah and um, that's so funny yeah and, and what you're saying is also a really a really important point too about like you know addiction is very real like um and yeah and not only addiction like like 
despite having the political views that I do about dr- drugs and alcohol, like I also, at the end of the day, believe in people's autonomy, and I believe sure. that people have the right, like, like especially in queer communities, you know, like. Um, there's this whole idea and practice of like partying as resist- resistance and I support people's right to engage in that if that's what feels right and like liberatory to them. Um, yeah, I think that's like a bad critique also. Like, I don't <laughs> think partying is resistance to anything. I think it's really fun and I think it's important to like maybe partying as like a means of sustaining your ability to continue doing resistance. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that's maybe a more it's not like, better way of putting it. It's going, I'm going to go out of my mind if I don't like go dance or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, but like, I don't, I think I had like part of my history of substance abuse or whatever was like, um, this world is fucked. This society is fucked. The only ethical thing is to become completely ungovernable and like a, be a bad citizen in this mm. bad world. Mm-hmm. And the best way to be a bad citizen is to be um, unproductive and wasted all the time. And that's like throwing a wrench in the works. Or mm-hmm. whatever. And I think that's so. It's like I have like kind of a personal stake in that. Art. And uh, like again, I don't really, I don't really care that much. Mm-hmm. But like, I do think partying as resistance is not. I I don't think. I think it's important to have transcendent moments and like to think about the ways that those sustain a person. Mm-hmm. But I think there's nothing inherently resistant about like going to a rave. I hear I hear what you're saying. I think also like that part of you know part of st- straight edge or like what you're you know what you're saying is these like kind of like purity divisions that people create is um, a lot of what it manages to totally neatly sidestep, which I think is just like totally. Amoral and like inhuman is yeah. is the reality of addiction and how that affects how that affects people, right? right? I think if you're truly someone who's straight edge, you should fully support people who are afflicted by or impacted by addiction in their like in their immediate needs um, as far as harm reduction, but also yeah. in supporting um, like recovery efforts and resources. Yeah, to course. me, those two things should be totally intertwined. Um, yeah, but it's like people that are um, anti-abortion, but also don't want to give anyone free childcare. Right, you right, know right. What I mean, it's like the thing, it's or like not don't about, want birth control to, right. to exist, or yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so if you're a, someone who's straight edge and you're like, yo, fuck addicts, like those people just don't have any self-control. Like yeah, you're weird. trash. Yeah, cool. <laughs> That's good. That'll be the pull quote that I start that I put in the episode before yours as like the. <laughs> the teaser and make it seem like it's really spicy when we're actually just having like a kind of normal conversation about anarchy. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, this the spicy moments. Yeah. Um, how did you get into tattooing? Because uh, I, I knew you. So you, wait, you, you're in Savannah. I do want to make this kind of chronological. You, then you moved to New York. Mm-hmm, yeah. Did you go to Pratt? I transferred to New York. I had to go to the New School. I went to Parsons. School. Okay. Um, I ended up leaving there, and then I went to Pratt. So I didn't make up that you were at Pratt. No. Were you living at that um, Kansas house when you were going to Pratt? Or is that after? No, I wasn't. But I did know some of the people who who lived there. Um, didn't you live there? I lived at um, Crown House. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. across the street. Yeah. Easy to confuse the two. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. Because I went and hung out there a bunch. Yeah. Like a long time ago. Yeah, I lived there, I guess, when I was at, yeah, when I was at Pratt. Okay, cool. For, like, the first part of it. And then I lived at 538 Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Notorious... Uh, famous American punk squalid <laughs> zone. 
whenever I have to talk about it to people who have no frame of reference for it, I just call it an anarchy warehouse. Yeah. And I think that that's a good shorthand for what it is and was. I think my favorite thing about 538 is a friend of mine who I won't name who lived there was dating a like non-punk, like no history of mm-hmm. just like gnarly shit person. And they were like, there's roaches everywhere. I can't do this anymore. I can't hang out with you. They like were going to bed one night and like pulled back the covers and there was a roach in the bed. Oh no. And their date, my friend's date was like, I, I'm done. I'm going home. And my friend was like, okay, fair enough. Go home. I'm going to get my room a lot cleaner. Can we just like have breakfast tomorrow and talk about it? And the person was like, fine, we can meet tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they went the next day and they like met at Maria's coffee shop on flushing and they were like hashing it out and then my friend went to pay for the meal and he's like I got this and opened up their wallet and a roach crawled <gasps> out of their wallet onto the table and their date was just like no 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 that was that's actually the last straw wow. never again yeah yeah it's pretty that's pretty in our you <laughs> yeah for real <laughs> damn that's crazy I mean you know I go there sometimes now and I think I brought my mom here I brought my mom there one time. Which did you, did you live in the Straight Edge house, though? I did, that yeah. That one was way cleaner than the other ones. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was still pretty gnarly, and the hallways are pretty... pretty yeah, those great. hallways are insane. <laughs> yeah, but um, I don't know. My mom, to her credit, is very is very chill, and she was probably like, wow, Tamarita, you guys built this whole place? Like, wow, amazing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, cool. Yeah, so she was, she's a cool, a cool mom. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I, like, I'm very sorry that I put her through that. Um, yeah. But but yeah, to answer your question, I mean, punk is what got me into tattooing. Yeah. Um, without a doubt. I mean, I was always around tattooing and tattooed people because mm-hmm. of being in punk and just thinking that like older punks and bands looked so cool because they had tattoos. Right. And, um, and friends of mine were working at shops and apprenticing at shops and like doing homemade tattoos. And so stick and pokes were the first tattoos I did. Everyone yeah. was doing it. Um, and it was actually at... The fort, Uh I, did you know, do you remember Yasha? Oh, yeah. So Yasha bought a tattoo machine. Yeah. And I remember he came home with it, and I was like, wait, wait, wait. Like, you can just buy a tattoo machine? Where did you get this from? And he was like, oh, I just bought it at, like, the tattoo supply store. One on Gallery? Yeah, so he let me do... I had a friend that used to work there. That place was, the like, the stories of, I should do a whole show about just customer stories from that place you should people that did like the home tattooers that were not our punk friends that were just like outer borough hustlers trying to Uh start up a business some of the stories about people that went into that place were just fucking wild yeah yeah i mean that it's so interesting to hear the ways that people talk about that place because um yeah, I have I have a lot of complicated emotions about it yeah. sometimes. You know, I think that there can be really divisive. I don't know. I don't know. Like at the, sometimes I'm like, at the end of the day, what's the difference between a punk kid doing like homemade tattoos of tall bikes like in someone's house and some like guy in the Bronx doing a tattoo of like his friend's name on like his right, his sure. guy. You know, um, and I think that. Tattoo, tattoo, the tattoo community in general needs to like check itself a little bit in how it like looks down on one and makes one seem more acceptable. Yeah, big time. Um, I mean, not that punks don't get heat for doing homemade tattoos, but yeah. Um, but yeah, the first two tattoos I did were of tall bikes on Yasha and no his friend, shit. and 
That's I, like two on the nose. I know. It's so it's so goofy. Yeah. Um but yeah, so I did those and then I and so yeah, me and Amina went to mm-hmm. Unimax and and the both of us bought machines. And yeah. my friend, it's one of the guys, he might have just quit. Um, but he sold me my first machine and he yeah. was like, I just need to see that you're 18 to buy it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he still worked there up until really recently, if not, is still there. Um, but he, and I, I'd love to remind him of that. I'm like, you know, you sold me my first machine ever, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I seriously went in there and was like, I just need some stuff to start tattooing. Like, I don't really know what I need. Can you just like yeah, tell me what me. to get? And he was like, okay, let me put together some stuff for you. So I, I'm very indebted to him as an individual. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so the first like five or six tattoos I did were at Crown House on a bunch of punk kids and on myself, on, on Amina, I think was one of them. And then, yeah, and then I moved to 538 and I was doing some tattooing out of there for a while uh-huh. on like just punk friends yeah whoever yeah and I was doing um, but I really wanted to be serious about it right like right. I wasn't I wasn't like oh let me just do this for fun I, I was like you know I really want to apprentice to tattoo mm-hmm. um, I'm in college right now I don't think I can commit the time they're going to want if I go around to shops and try to get one but um, maybe I can try it out in the meantime and then get like a real opportunity when I'm done yeah um, and so I was you know painting flash I was like looking at all the Sailor Jerry stuff, trying mm-hmm. to redraw designs, like looking at all these tattoos. Um, and what ended up happening is that I, this was when I was still in school, with my last year of college. I did a tattoo on my friend Ted, who worked at the bike, sh- the bike shop. And he went and got tattooed at Three Kings Tattoo the next day. And they saw the tattoo that I did. And they were like, hey, um, who did this tattoo on you? And he said, oh, my friend Tamara just did it at her house. And I wasn't really telling people that I was tattooing out of my house, yeah. but I kind of knew the guys at Three Kings. Again, like because of punk, right. I, I was I was in school for printmaking, so I was still, still screening all the posters for all the shows at 538 Johnson. Uh-huh. And they needed somebody to make silk screen posters for a Friday the 13th tattoo event. So my somebody recommended me. I came in there with like all these punk posters that I had drawn and printed yeah. and showed them to them and they were like cool these look good you're hired you can do this gig for us uh, and I did it in trade for getting tattooed by one of the owners uh-huh. so after that then my friend comes in and is like oh my friend that person camera yeah. did those tattoos did my tattoo and they called me and they were like hey we saw the tattoo that you did on Ted and that was a, that, I mean that moment was so unbelievable to me because yeah. I I thought I was in trouble at first I thought right. I thought they were like Don't fuck you you're a town. scratcher yeah. like you can't you're not allowed to do that anymore um but they were like it look it looks okay you know like do you want to come and do tattoos here and um and I went and had a meeting with them and they were like yeah you like don't really know what you're doing but you like are on your way like you kind of have it figured out and like you just yeah. need some practice and you just need some <clears throat> some guidance and like a place to do it so so I started working there um, just by appointment, like basically tattooing all my same friends, but just at the shop right. and um, just charging the shop minimum for everything at first. And I did that a couple of days a week while I was still in school. And then when I graduated, I started working there full time. Full time, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And then do you still work at, you moved on from Three Kings to Saved at some point, right? Yeah. So I've been at Saved You've been for, at Save for almost for, five years. For kind of a while. Yeah. Yeah. What's it been like? Like, I remember you were just like this kid that I knew. Mm-hmm. And then like one day I was like, 
which seems to have happened a lot with my friends that tattoo. I was like, oh, this is actually like an important person in the tattoo world <laughs> or whatever. Like, like I remember the first two tattoos I got from Mark Cross, I made him do this Paul Clay painting. No way. That thing looks good. He did a great job on yeah. that. And then this tarot card, yeah. which he did less of a great job on, and I did a very <laughs> bad job taking care of. Okay. But also, I had never even looked at his work. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea. I was just like, this is my friend. This one he did in his house. Yeah. Uh, when him and Maggie lived right down the street from here. Mm-hmm. And then this one he did at the old East River. Yeah. Um, and the day that he did this, like, fine line and intricate detail took fucking forever. Tarot tattoo. He had won the Sailor Jerry tattooer of the year award or something wow, okay. and I was like I didn't even know that was a thing yeah who knows and I was like why does your phone keep blowing up like what's going on <laughs> there's all these people keep coming and asking for him and he was just like busy tattooing me and I was just hearing them get mm-hmm. sent away and uh, and I had just quit drinking and it was like two days before my grandfather's funeral I was freaking out oh, man. that day but um, but he was like I don't know I just like won a contest from some rum company <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and like then a few days later, I was like, "Oh, like Mark is a big deal." Like people, and I've been making him do all this stuff that is not. I should have been asking him to do just his own shit. Yeah, um, but I'm again. I'm so rambly. But the point is, I at some point realized that you were a big fucking deal, <laughs> right? No. And that like to strangers and shit. Uh, and I wonder, like, how did that feel? And how does that feel to be like? someone that I think is like a kind of stands out in the tattoo community as like a woman of color with like a very distinct tattooing style and has like that someone like what is that like him I mean I really appreciate you saying that uh it's well I've been in so I've been in tattooing now I've been tattooing in shops for almost nine years yeah it'll be nine years in January okay um and if you count all my home home time, I've probably been tattooing for about a decade. Yeah. So this is my reflection time to really look back at the past and think about yeah, it sure. as a whole and think about where am I now? What's my relationship to tattooing as a whole? And I mean, it's it's been a very fraught journey in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I really still look back and think if I hadn't taken it upon myself to start tattooing, in my house would I have been able to get entry into tattooing um, like would I be tattooing today sure um, because now I mean the industry has changed so dramatically since yeah. I first got into it um, I I feel very lucky that I got into tattooing before Instagram existed and mm-hmm. been able to see at least a little bit of the before and, and now the after yeah and I, I definitely credit the internet with um sort of democratizing tattooing in a way. Um, I mean, I the thing that was cool to me about tattooing when I got into it was that it was a sort of like secret cult in a yeah. way. Um, it, was, it was a secret cult, but it was also, you could do it yourself. Right. Um, and there was all these levels to it. And it was sort of like this this like labyrinth that you could just like go deeper and like go into an, a different direction like learn about a different style like learn about this obscure person in history that you had never come upon or um there's there's so much um kind of like unseen history mm-hmm. and alternative history and outsider history in the tattoo world and that's something i really love about it um but i think that in in the u.s um, because of the ways that it's been guarded and because of the ways that it's been handed down as a tradition, 
that obviously very really narrows the scope of who's allowed right. to be in it or who's invited into it. Yeah, um, for sure. And and I don't necessarily say that to fault tattooers and say like you're racist you're excluding people you're sexist you're excluding people i mean yes there is a lot of that in tattooing but i don't necessarily i think it's important to talk about the fact that it's not necessarily a conscious decision um you know i think that especially now people are like teaching someone to tattoo is a huge commitment i have to spend years around this person i'm sharing with them a craft i'm giving them a way of making a living they are likely going to come work for me. Who is the person that I want to give that to? And who's the person I feel comfortable doing that to? For a lot of people, that's people like them. So if we're looking at like mostly white men tattooers, right. that's who is going to be invited in as the next generation. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's due to people who take it upon themselves to say like, you know what, we need people who are different from us to, to be involved in this and to make it as rich and vibrant and multifaceted as it deserves to be. Um, who who are kind of like the heroes, I think. Um, and I, I really am so indebted to the people at Three Kings who were like, hey, dirty punk girl, like come into yeah. our shop, you know? We that saw this tattoo you did in your house and called you over it. That's so sick. And that so was incredible. Sick. It was yeah. so special that they did that. And I yeah, really love really them nice. for that. Um, and that's empowered me to then go on and try to, and think about who I, who I want to invite in, into this world and who right. I think should have a voice in this world. And, um, and that's kind of where I'm at now you know I think I feel a little I mean when I first got into tattooing I'm, I'm really grateful to have had the um the introduction and the the entry that I that I did you know I worked in a shop that was kind of a street shop very much traditional like you have to do every kind of tattoo we're going to give you the hardest people to deal with mm-hmm. you cannot say no to any tattoo um you're, literally any tattoo I mean there were definitely certain ones like if I was like I'm not going to do the swastika tattoo like of course no one's yeah, going to yeah. argue with you but um, but there was definitely tattoos that I felt weird about doing that I would not choose to do now sure. um, but there was a sense that like you, that's not your place to say you know you're a technician you're here to learn how to be a technician um, your ego is not involved like you yeah. have to learn how to be multifaceted you know, have to learn how to talk to every kind of person you have to be able to provide this customer service um, and that I think really made me the person that I am today it made me I was horrible at talking to people at first and I had to learn how to talk to people really fast so yeah. that they wouldn't pass out when I was tattooing yeah, them for and sure. be nervous. Yeah, we were really shy when we first met. Yeah. Like, I remember you as just like a pretty quiet person that was like cool whenever we talked, but it was like kind of, it, there was always, it always was like, a, there had to be a moment where like we were alone in a room or like where there was a break in the conversation because we were around so many people with big personalities all the time right. where like I would even hear you speak like in the, you know, in the early days of us being friends that I feel like. And it's much like, yeah, your confidence is palpably different today. Oh, like thank you. You seem so much more at home in your own kind of self in a way that's really nice to see. Thank you. Yeah, think, you're welcome. I think part of that's getting older, but I do think tattooing was a big part of that, especially because you, you know, you have to, you do have to deal with all different kinds of people. You have to really convince them of your skill level. You have to sell to them that you're the right person for the job. Yeah, for and sure. And that you're going to help them through this permanent change in their, in their body, in their life. And, um, and, and yeah, there's been times that I had to be like, really, really put my foot down with some people who would maybe be scary and tough to another person. And I had to be like, no, no weird Polish biker. Uh, you cannot yell at me and you have to leave right now. Like, I'm not yeah. going to take this from you. Um, 
so I'm, I'm happy that I was put in those positions because I'm pretty unfazed by most things now. Um, but it also, I think, taught me some really valuable lessons that I need, needed to learn at the time mm-hmm. about um, my own reactiveness and political correctness um, and how that was a barrier to connecting with people. For um, sure. And it's because you know, at the, when I got into that, I was living at 538 Johnson. Um, I was really mad at the whole world. Mm-hmm. And um, I was also, you know, I was in this kind of kind of feminist punk band and hanging out a lot of hanging out with a lot of feminist punks. Yeah. And I think zombie my zombie dogs, zombie dogs, great band. Yeah, I love that tape. Thanks. Still have it. <laughs> Amazing. It's in a carnal knowledge case. That's perfect. My tape. Yeah. And I know they're they're two different shades of blue. Mm-hmm. And I always forget which is which, but one of them is the carnal knowledge <laughs> tape, and then one of them is the zombie dogs. Cool. Tape. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. Um, but yeah, I think. I was in a place then where I was just very reactionary, For and sure. I was very superficially dismissive of, of people. Like if you if you called someone a bitch, like I would just be like, "That's wrong," you know. And um, and having to be in a place where there was all different kinds of people coming in and out, using all different kinds of language, mm-hmm. I think really made me have to think quite a bit about what was actually wrong to me, what was tolerable to me in my workplace, mm-hmm. what. Um, what were ways that I could diplomatically talk to people about the things that they were saying? Um, where could I find common ground that I didn't necessarily expect to find? Um, and that was so important for me to yeah. to know. I mean, and especially it's something that I value a lot now too, um, because I've been doing a lot of work in the in the carceral system, um, teaching at Rikers Island and teaching at other correctional facilities. And um, I think that that's been a really important skill to possess in those spaces too to be able to have conversations a lot of the times with young men who um who don't necessarily have the language to talk about transgender people or queer people or women um in what would be considered like the right way or the best way um Uh but i find it to be a lot more productive to like parse what they're saying and respond to them um in a way where like i hear i hear what they're saying beyond the language that they're using Uh and talk to them about that um, rather than be like, hey, you're really wrong. Why don't you shut up? Shut yeah, up. Yeah, Stop yeah. saying that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's so many lessons I've learned in tattoo shops. There's a lot of things uh-huh. that I have definitely learned I do not care to be around. Um, and I'm able to now choose that I don't have to be around those things. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, I feel really grateful. I mean, but I think partially because of the hard work ethic that was drilled into me at Three Kings. Um, I was able to really quickly kind of like take the reins on my tattoo career um, right. and be ta- like be by appointment only after only four years of tattooing, which is pretty um, it's pretty rare, I think, mm-hmm. um, at least at, at that time. Um, and yeah, really be able to say yes and no to who I want to work with and what I want to take on. Um, and that's been able to, you know, it's given me the ability to create these very special client relationships that I... I value a lot. Yeah, you know? for sure. The people who come to me now, so many of them, I feel like I learn so much from and I'm able to have these amazing conversations and at the end I'm like just, I'm just like thank you for thank you for talking to me about that. Thank you for telling me about what you do. Like thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. Wow, thank you for yeah. choosing me for this for this for you. So Cool. It feels good. How how far how many years in or how many months or whatever in did you develop your like cuz you were kind of known for a pretty 
like signature style of mm -hmm. tattooing that's like I feel like is like influenced equally by like punk and hardcore tattoos and like kind of Chicanx uh, like traditional tattoo imagery and mm -hmm. it's funny the shop that I grew up going to where I got my first tattoo from which is this mom over my heart <laughs> oh, cool. um, was called Lupita's Tattoos uh -huh. in downtown New Rochelle New York and it was this couple, Lupita and Grenyas, they ran it. Oh, that's so beautiful. That's my aunt's name, actually. Lupita? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good name. I've always... And they have, actually, the one of the um, under-22-year-olds in the mm -hmm. under-22-year-old punk house I was staying at, <laughs> um, who went to New Rochelle High School, was classmates mm -hmm. with their kids. No way. And remembers when they came into school on career day to be... and. Grenias had like hair down to his butt, mm -hmm. like skin tight jeans in the '90s when no one did except for Mexican hair rockers and like <laughs> an XL Ramones T-shirt. So like, fucking cool. Just crush, just like Mexican rock and rollers. Mm -hmm. And they, um, they had uh, my band in high school, The Eradicators. Mm -hmm. um, uh, my friend Juan, the guitar player, was his dad was from Guadalajara and mm -hmm. his mom was from El Salvador somewhere and. They were really stoked that there was, like, a Mexican kid from their neighborhood, like, doing rocker shit. Mm -hmm. And so they would invite us to play their shows, and we would all hang around the shop, and it was, like, this really cool place. And they did, almost all of their work was either, like, um, Latin King cursive, mm -hmm. kind of like... The one I remember the most from their wall of photos of tattoos was a, like, kind of decently composed mm -hmm. portrait of a baby with... Um, in cursive, it said "Daddy's little bitch" with a Y, <laughs> like around the baby Damn. who had like a little bow on her head. You uh -huh. know what I mean? Like that ball baby where they put a bow just so you can signify right. the it's gender. A, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they did like, uh, like um, Aztec, like traditional looking, amazing, uh, yeah. like calendars and shit, yeah. like back pieces, yeah. and that was almost all of their work was either like this like kind of like the the drama masks mm -hmm. or like that painting of uh that rip dude from the mexican restaurant who's got i i feel like such a dick so i can't remember <laughs> his name um but the that like you know i think it's aztec folklore of the like dude holding the like kind of hot lady and he's got oh like, right yeah what's his name the, the i don't know Doesn't i forget matter. it's like the mountain the mountains yeah, um, like shit like that. You know yeah. what I mean? And it was very... That Classics. was That was their... Yeah. Oh, or like super metal shit. Like the people that worked there, this one dude had um, Satan tattooed like across his whole throat <laughs> in cool. red old English letters. <laughs> and he had spider webs inside his ears. And I remember thinking that was like the toughest thing you could possibly do is get tattoos inside your ears. Yeah. I was just like, what the fuck? His name was Negra. He was so scary <laughs> yeah. and but that was like I think for me in New York where it's like a little I've talked about this before on the show it's like just a little more de facto everything is a little more diverse than other mm -hmm. places it was like you know my entry point to tattooing was these Mexican metalheads um, or like that to that world um, and they still have their shop I think in downtown New Rochelle I'll take you there sometime if you I would love to want. yeah that really would I'd love to get cool. tattooed there yeah mm -hmm. I should get tattooed there again yeah we should just go up there next time I'm in New York cool um, but they yeah so I think that was my kind of like 
my introduction to that style of tattooing yeah. and I never the like kind of street and like kind of more um, seemingly like maybe gang affiliated work that they were doing mm-hmm. this aesthetics of it was something I never really saw replicated maybe like in the like um, what I call screamo cursive of the like mid 2000s mm-hmm. there was like a similar vibe but mm-hmm. it, it was there, there was like the way the cursives looped was even a little different yeah. but um and then until what it seemed like was you developing your like what is now your current kind of style and like the oeuvre in which you work uh, I feel like draws a lot on those influences mm-hmm. in a way that is I definitely was like whoa what's going on here and then I was like wow this is being dealt with really respectfully and kind of like uh, I don't know but when did that when did that style sort of coalesce for you you know, like because mm-hmm. if you're working at Three Kings and they're making you do whatever walks in off the street, like how long does it take you for to develop? Like, this is actually what I want to be doing. Right. Well, I think um, you know, entering into tattooing, obviously, punk aesthetics was mm-hmm. something I was aware of and valued in tattooing because those were all the tattoos people were getting. Those were the tattoos I was getting. Like to this day, I don't have any color tattoos because when I started getting tattooed, it just wasn't cool to have anything with color or like even shading everything was like a silhouette or a line drawing um so that was kind of in the background but then when i saw what was considered like legit tattooing it was all uh, like color americana traditional yeah and that was sort of presented to me as like the standard uh style that like hit all your your technical marks that you should be aspiring to like Mm -hmm. solid black solid lines like like smooth whip shading whatever so um so when you were able to do one of those tattoos, you were like, oh, cool. This is like a cool tattoo that I get to do. Yeah. But, um, but, but yeah, but I have to say it never totally resonated with me where I was like, okay, this is a, you know, a space I'm coming into. This is what's considered as the marker of, of um, like proper tattooing in a way. Yeah. Um, but, but it didn't, ha- yeah, it just didn't possess that, that punk quality or even like, um, you know, starting to see the black and gray stuff, that was when... I mean, I'm, try- I'm trying to think, like... I mean, hearing you describe the people that you... Um, this the shop that you grew up with and, like, the people that were in your band, that is, like, a friend I would have killed to have in high school. Like, if sure. I had had, like, one Mexican rocker in my life, things, I think, would have been really different for me. Yeah. Um, but I think at the time, I was really struggling a lot with, like, not feeling like I was able to identify as Mexican or, like, I was, like... Did not feel like I was recognized for that and, like, not really having a lot of friends I could be speaking Spanish with Mm -hmm. and, like, feeling very detached from that, from moving to New York. And, you know, coming to New York, it is so diverse, but, like, there are not, you know... It's very segregated, too. It is segregated. Um, There was also, like, there's a huge cultural divide between Mexicans and Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, which there are a lot of here. Yeah. Um, You know, where I would be like, I don't know if I even can speak Spanish. Like, the Spanish is so different. Like, I don't even know how to communicate in this type of Spanish. Uh Like, who do I talk to? And um, and so being yeah, and so being in tattoo spaces, like, it was pretty much white white people um, for the for the most part. And so, um, starting to see tattoos that were done. Again, this was before Instagram, so it was like yeah. seeing Flash in the books that we had, like some black and gray stuff. A lot of it was from like Boog or um, like Jack Rudy. Um, we, there was not a lot of it, 
but when people started to see that that's what I was gravitating towards, they'd be like, hey, check this out. Or like my friend Daniel Albrigo, he had just moved from California and he was like, hey, check this out, Teen Angels Magazine, you'll like this. Hell yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of things I was starting to see where I was like, okay, this this is it. Like this has not only the energy of like my culture, um, in a way that I can bring into my workplace and my creative tattoo practice, but also like that punk energy. Um, mm -hmm. and, and starting to see places where that was overlapping, like every, I can remember so many moments where I saw them co colliding or coexisting that were so important to me. Like coming to New York, hanging out in Union, Union Square and seeing like, uh, you know, like a Guatemalan guy in a Cradle of Filth t-shirt. I was just like, hell yeah, so yeah. sick, you know? Um, Every mm. black metal fan I met before I was 18 was from Colombia or Ecuador. Totally. Yeah, totally. Like, like Latinx metalheads go hard. Go as so hard. Fuck. Yeah. And so, um, and so, yeah, so it was important for me to see, to, to just feel like those were allowed to coexist. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying, you know, connecting with that, that imagery and seeing like, oh man, this is awesome. Like this is stuff that I grew up seeing at like the grocery store that we went to my whole life or like. Cal yeah, calendar are like w window decals, like stuff that was like in Mexico when we would visit my family, um, mm -hmm. and like all this traditional imagery. Um, and the technical ability for that kind of came from doing all these walk-ins. You know, I was doing tons yeah. of tiny lettering from the computer with like a tight three. Then I was like, oh, now I can do a whole tattoo with this because this right. is, I am comfortable with this. Yeah. Um, and I definitely think at the time people. Did, did see that style and in New York that style in certain shops just wasn't perceived as being cool or legitimate right. you know um, and I don't and and from from the beginning I, I appreciate you saying that it seems intentional and, and aware because I do think about it a lot and mm -hmm. I do um, really spend a lot of time kind of like parsing my right to certain images or like thinking about where I come from and, and where I don't come from. You know, right, yeah. I don't come from California where that style originated. Sure. Um, that style has a deep history in the prison system in California that I try to be really aware of and pay respect to um, in the activism that I do and the ways that I talk about the style as well. Um, yeah, I was actually, I was wondering before, because I didn't know that you teach at Rikers and mm -hmm. other um, like incarceration spaces or whatever but I like I, wa I was wondering if you started tattooing prison style shit before or if you were doing the tattoos and then you were like oh I need to balance the scales a little bit like I'm going to go into these places and and teach people oh yeah so yeah I hear that so actually a part of so so when I kind of first was starting to get into the black and gray style and trying to do more of that I was doing a lot of paintings of that type of mm -hmm. thing too because I wasn't getting to tattoo it as much um, and at the time this was sort of like a, a turning a turning point as well one of my some of my friends who lived in North Carolina who were like hardcore anarchist organizers um, yeah. We're doing some courtroom and legal support for some of their community down there that were um, Latin kings. Okay. So this man named Jorge Cornell um, is from New York, and he moved his family down to North Carolina and founded a chapter of the Almighty Latin King and Queen Nation um, because he saw so much um, racism there. He saw so much police repression of his community. Sure. He was seeing all these issues that were affecting um, 
affecting the people that he lived with and his family and so he started this um, this organization and his incarnation of it like I don't know if you know a lot about the history of the Latin Kings um, I know some but I don't know that for all our listeners do so I would love a, like a synopsis yeah so all um, so I, I don't know if I can give you quite a, a detailed in depth yeah. like chronologically accurate um, no no I think just like synopsis a, but but you know the Latin Kings are known as this like street gang street criminal gang right widely but the Latin Kings also have had moments and also totally separate iterations of being um, like street advocacy groups um, yes. much in the tradition of like the Black Panthers the Young Lords mm-hmm. the um, the Brown Berets um, so in New York, there's actually a pretty rich history of the Latin Kings doing community organizing. Um, I think maybe even alongside the Young Lords, but around like uh, police police brutality, around um, municipal services for neighborhoods of color. Yeah. Um, and they um, there's actually a really incredible podcast about it um, on Latino USA about um, okay yeah so cool. if people want like a more in depth yeah um, I'll find that and link it in the like episode description yeah it's really good so so Jorge you know starts this chapter in North Carolina and he's like okay this group is about community empowerment you cannot be engaging in, in any criminal activity if you're a member of this um, he's he's doing all of this work um, he runs for city council. He's he was at the time the only Latino man ever to run for city council. Um, he's doing a lot of organizing alongside these um, alongside local churches, trying to foster gang tr- gang truces. Mm-hmm. Um, he was organizing alongside this man who was kind of like a long tra- long time civil rights activist and church leader there. Um, just doing very important work. Yeah. And so the young and so the the everyone in his community started. Um, the, the feds came after them, basically. Um, there was all this backlash. The feds were trying to prosecute them under RICO um, as, a, as a gang for these racketeering charges and found people... They were trying to charge them as a group with criminal acts that members had um, had committed before or after being in the group. Uh-huh. Um, so then they're dealing with raids by the feds. They're dealing with searches. They're dealing with 24-hour surveillance. Right. Um, just being terrorized by the cops. Um there was something very suspicious that happened where um, the surveillance that he was under had to leave, quote unquote, for 30 minutes. And in that time he was shot and somebody made an attempt on his life. Um, but so he ended up, he's, he's currently incarcerated. I think he got something like 17 years. Uh-huh. Um, and he and I correspond with each other. Um, he's, a, he's a really inspiring person, but sure. he... Um, but so at the time, my friends who were these like white punks were helping out with um, everything that they were dealing with, yeah. doing like courtroom support, like legal uh, fundraising, like childcare stuff, I think. Um, and it was one of the first times they, they asked me to donate um, some paintings for this benefit they were doing. And it was kind of the first time that I had really seen white punks working with brown people in that way. Um, Where it wasn't like about centering their own altruism and was more about just doing actual work that needs to get done totally or about romanticizing like i don't know like uh like anarchists in oaxaca or like zapatistas from like a very distant way uninvolved way um and so that was really important to me um and that really connected some dots for me about all of these things coexisting as well um in a political sense and so um 
And so, yeah, I mean, that really set set me off into learning more about um, the criminal justice system, learning more about, I mean, you know, being a punk too, you have this framework around critiquing the prison system, around prison abolition, and you're kind of vaguely for it, but you don't necessarily know what it right. means. Um, and you don't necessarily have to interact with it too in a, in a complex or like deep way. Um, a lot of people don't. So, yeah. um, so that was something that I, yeah, started to get really into learning about. And um, um, I started teaching at Rikers two years ago. That was kind of like my first entry into working directly inside yeah. um, correctional facilities. Um, and I see that as being important to, I mean, I also did this project with my publishing house, Discipline Press, um, mm-hmm. to put together a stationary set that's, um, I think it's 80 different artists that yeah, are yeah, currently yeah. incarcerated that made stationary sets or sheets with their drawings and their contact information and bio on the back, and they were all paid for their work. So, um, so how yeah, does the paying people in prison work? It goes in their commissary. Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, it it differed for every person because sure. some people you're not allowed to profit um, if you're locked up. You're not. You're not supposed to be making money in any way. Yeah, I know. Um, so there was some workarounds that we had to do. But you do. can get paid like eight cents an hour to make to stamp KFC boxes or whatever. Which right. Is like, yeah. So yeah. Fucked. Right. And so, or some people wanted it wanted it to be sent to family on the outside, sure. or you know, there was a lot of different ways of doing it. Um, but, but yeah, it's very important to me to also be clear about the fact that like, money people give me to do these tattoos also goes back to the inside to like teaching right to like trying to do support in whatever way I can um and that I'm not just like profiting off of this and and that's and that's something that's important to to me um not just because I think it's really important um right and not only because I think that that history needs to be vocally preserved um and that connection needs to be spoken about because the way that i see it i don't i just don't think that black and gray tattooing would exist the way that it does today if it were not for the disproportionate incarceration of black and brown people um there's a, there's a huh. like there's a um a documentary called tattoo nation that's about um the origins of black and gray with like freddie negretti jack rudy good time charlie's um and how a single needle started in in california prisons uh-huh. um so so now, partially because of the internet, that style has become so popularized. And, right. and now there's a lot of people who um, work solely in that style. They like, have never even done a collar tattoo. They, I, can, I know the reference that they're looking at because I've looked at a lot of it too. Right. Um, but I think just because you can buy the reference and copy it or draw from it and tattoo in that style, um, that that doesn't necessarily mean that you sh- that you should. I, I think it's important to credit where it comes from, and I think it's important to speak mm-hmm. about. Um, I mean, even so, a lot of the original artists, you know, like stuff gets traced out of Teen Angels, and um, the name of the artist who did that originally is not yeah not credited. Vanishes. It just vanishes, and so um, and so yeah, I think. Not necessarily everyone who does that style needs to like go work inside a prison, but I think that it's important to credit where that's coming from. It's important to acknowledge where it originated. I think it's important to talk about um, how the imagery is disseminating, especially at a time uh-huh. where politically um, immigrants of color and are just dealing with 
so much incredible repression and violence. Um, yeah, for sure. And the ways that media stereotyping is functioning to contribute to that, um, I don't think that tattooing should contribute to that. Right. And I think that we need to work to com- combat the negative stereotyping about tattooing as it relates to prison. I think that tattooing can engage in a lot of respectability, politics, and, and policing of like what's legitimate, what's professional, what's not. Um, and, and yeah, there's different levels to the professionalism of tattooing, and I think that that's actually a, a strength that it has. Yeah. Um, but I think that... Um, but I think that we need to... I think that partially the mainstreaming of tattooing has relied on uh, distancing tattooing from criminal association. Um, and, you know, because... I'm sure you've heard people say that. Like, oh, it used to be only criminals had tattoos. Or you only uh-huh. had tattoos if you'd been to prison. But now everyone has tattoos. So right. now it's okay because it's not criminals that have them. Right. Or um, you you can have tattoos and not be a criminal. It's sort of the implication there. Yeah. I think there was also, like... The, I remember there was a conversation that was kind of like... Like, wake up sheeple. Like, kind of blow in white minds about, like, who gets to have... Uh, like manic panic in their hair like maybe 20 years ago when it was like pretty popular there was like a trend at least in New York of like black women having bright colored Mm -hmm. hair and like uh, like Remy Ma and Eve and stuff would have like Mm -hmm. Eve's from Philly not New York but you know what I'm saying have like some crazy color hair and it was like that was like ghetto or whatever but then me and my friends in the suburbs would have like five colors in our hair and mm-hmm. we'd look way more like shit <laughs> and that was like acceptable because we were the progeny of uh, middle to upper middle class white people right. and I think the conversation the similar conversation now is like who gets to have a hand tattoo or a neck tattoo or a face tattoo exactly right? like, or who gets to have tattoos that look quote unquote bad right um, like there's this whole movement towards like kind of crude or sort of like um, there's a lot of names people use for it, but sort of like homemade looking tattooing. And part of me backs it because sure. I think that tattoos don't always have to look expensive or like in yeah. a certain visual tradition to be to be able to be gotten at a shop. And I think that people want all kinds of tattoos and expanding the, the definitions of like what tattoo art is, I think is really mm-hmm. important. But it's also... That idea is really complicated for me when I go to like Rikers, for example, and see some of the guys that I work with who are, are very embarrassed about the quality of the tattoos that they have. And, and they're kind of like, man, can you be honest with me? Like, does this look fucked up? Like, can you fix this for me? Yeah. Um, yeah, for real. And and that's that's actually something I'm trying to offer more now, too, is like free re, like reworking and covering up for people who are coming out of the system if oh, they no want shit. tattoos to like look nicer because that is a real um there's like a lot of classism and elitism and and racism that plays into that too it's like oh if you have like a fucked up stick and poke and you're like a white art school kid people treat that really differently than if you have a fucked up stick and poke and you're like a puerto rican kid who just got out of rikers island yeah absolutely Um, and and so it feels weird to me when people want tattoos to look bad on purpose and they're paying quite a lot of money for it um, I don't know. I have a lot, of, a lot of mixed feelings about it. I don't necessarily have clear-cut answers, but I think... Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder if some of it is just, like, universalizing my own experience, but it definitely... The idea of wanting tattoos that look like shit isn't weird to me, but the idea that someone would pay a lot of money to have a tattoo that looks like shit is, like, 
just let your friend that doesn't know how to tattoo yet practice on you. Like, if you really want your tattoos to look bad, there's organic ways to make that happen that feel more, like, authentic or something to me, which is, like, also just a made-up thing. Like, I'm really... Totally. Like, well, as no, I'm but saying that's true. It, I know that's it's made true. Up, but, like, you know, I have... I think Amina gave me the third ever tattoo she did. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a drawing of a kosher salami on my thigh that says fourth rule over oh yeah I remember that tattoo yeah Yeah, I do and (laughs) I I think I posted a picture of it on Instagram or something on Joey Ramone's Mm -hmm. birthday and I was like I I mentioned that I traded uh, Amina I gave her like most of the end of a pack of Samson tobacco Mm -hmm. two Percocets and 20 bucks for the tattoo yeah and she commented like lol i owe you 20 bucks or something you know what i mean because like but like i have some tattoos that look like garbage or like this one on the back of my arm i won't say who did it but they like were on dope and nodded out while they Mm -hmm. were tattooing me and we had to do this piece of shit thing in two sessions like (laughs) that looks awful Uh um you want bad tattoos there's like ways to get bad tattoos that are not paying someone who only does bad tattoos for like hundreds of dollars each or whatever I don't know yeah or I guess it makes me think a lot about what the aesthetics of tattoos are a shorthand for and mm-hmm. what and in what ways that can be aspirational to the people wearing them like sure. like um, do you want a tattoo that looks like shit but you don't want your friend to be on heroin when they're tattooing you like <laughs> it, like probably yeah you don't I, I don't think anyone wants that like, but yeah, for and sure. I do think people should be able to get a bad tattoo without their friend having to be high, to, right. you know. So it's kind of like, what's the, but like, what's the impulse behind wanting it to look that way, or yeah. what's the impulse behind like, uh, is is the is the aesthetic a byproduct of the circumstance, or is it an intentional um, like construct that sort of like vaguely represents an implied circumstance I guess right and um, yeah and that's why I have a certain like the tattoos that I do I try to make them technically beautiful Uh I try to make them seem timeless and like I put a lot of consideration into it yeah and I sometimes see people doing versions of the same imagery that's sort of like intentionally crude and I don't I don't necessarily know what the intention of the artist is in doing that but to me, I'm like, I don't know. It kind of feels like this person purposely wanted a tattoo that looks like it was done in prison without having gone to prison. Right. And that feels wrong to me. For sure, um, yeah. And, and um, so, yeah, so I'm trying to do, um, I'm trying to start like a series of interviews with people about their experiences of tattoos through incarceration. Uh-huh. Um, because cool. Because I see tattooing like my my theory on tattooing is that it's a really important way to assert an autonomy and ownership over your own body and i think that that's really crucial in spaces where that sort of bodily autonomy is being taken away from you mm-hmm. um yeah. so in places where like when you can eat when you can sleep when you can take a shower is being controlled by the state um in places where you can't express yourself through clothing because you have to wear a uniform, I think sure. the tattoos can take on a huge amount of significance. Um, and that's and that's sort of setting aside, you know, like the coded language that exists within tattooing as well, and the ways that that's read differently in prison. Um, I was actually talking to um, a friend of mine who I'm getting tattooed by tomorrow, who has um, been in and out of prison 
um, throughout his life. And he was saying that one of the times he went in, he was already, you know, a professional tattooer working at a shop. And he, um, when he got out, they wouldn't let him have that as his job. It didn't fulfill the conditions of his parole because they thought that that was too close to some sort of criminal element um, <laughs> for him to be able to do it. Yeah. So he was telling me he ended up having to get a job as a baker at Whole Foods when he had this whole professional career. But right. that, but he just wasn't allowed by the state to even do it after he got out for yeah, a, for, he, some, for a while. Even though they made tattooing legal in New York, like. A couple decades ago now. It was pretty late. Mm -hmm. it got, right? Wasn't it the 90s before they made it legal to tattoo in shops in New 96, York? I think, was the yeah. year. 96, 97. Um, um, uh, even though it's like a viable trade or whatever, mm -hmm. according to in the eyes of the state, it still is. That's so fucked. Wow. Really interesting. Yeah, I think that, that was in Texas. Um, but, but, you know, that also, I think, brings up the idea that different tattoos have different meanings in different spaces sure and I see a lot of people who get tattoos of certain things that I'm like you seem to be getting this tattoo unconsciously predicated on the idea that you won't ever be around gangs for example right um you know like I like, know mad white kids with that me vita loca yeah that's a big one. right here and like in the spot mm -hmm. where I'm like what are you doing like what do you think is gonna or like Every time I walk down Broadway in Manhattan, I feel like I see a very handsome white man with, like, prayer hands with a rosary bead wrapped around yeah. him on his fucking neck. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, give me a fucking break. This is not for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it's 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 very important to think about. And again, I don't have the answers. Yeah. I don't maybe, like not, to, not, maybe not for you. I don't like to be yeah. gatekeeper yeah. about about images, but there are certain things that I'm... And people will ask me, you know, they'll ask me, like, what... Do you think it's okay for me to get this? Sure. As if I have some sort of like authority on this subject, yeah. which I really, really don't. Um, but I think that I, I like to have those, those conversations with people and say, like, okay, well, like, what what experience do you have with this image? Like, what does this mean to you right. personally? What what kind of connection do you have with this? If the answer is none, maybe there's a better way of representing what you want to represent. Right. Um, if you you know, but if you feel like you have the right to just look at any cultural image, pick it and take it, I think that's a problem. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk about discipline press real quick. Okay. Uh, how did, what's the genesis? Like, when did you start publishing? Because you are, yeah. you're not, you're a tattooer, mm -hmm. you're a working artist, you are also the head of a publishing house now. Um, how did that come about? The, it's, it's funny to think of discipline press as this publish, publishing house because it is in, in a way it is. yeah it is it's a continuation of I mean again punk punk, punk stuff you sure. know zines um, DIY publishing yeah. was something I was doing for a long time and um, I was doing the art book fairs through printed matter yeah um, doing a lot of self-publishing just in my own work you know and, and I yeah, was yeah. doing like stuff for punk friends like printing t-shirts for people printing posters for people um and, you know, and I studied printmaking, which is all about reproduction. And I, I was just seeing a lot, especially through doing the art fairs of people who were working with different publishing houses or working with different printers and having a difficult time. And I, at certain, I mean, this is the, this is how everything's born, right? I was like, I think I can do, I think I can maybe do better than this. Yeah. Um, for people, I think I have some resources and knowledge that I've accumulated over years of doing this for myself that I could maybe extend to other people. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been an interesting journey because I've learned a ton 
through doing it for other folks. It's, it's very different than just doing it for yourself. Yeah. And it's also been challenging because a lot of the content of what I work with is provocative or controversial and um, to, to some people. And um, there's a lot of real barriers to putting that out into the world that aren't necessarily visible, um, like finding printers that will actually print certain content. Right. Or finding... It's like label as pornography or something? Um, I, I think so. There's actually... That's actually a huge thing. Yeah. Um, I've started to try to compile lists of like uh, pub printing houses that are friendly and supportive of that type of content of like nudity or like queer content yeah. or um, of like kink content because yeah, sure. I, I think that for some... I mean, I've had people ref refund my order. Like I'll place an order online and they'll just send my money back and say they can't print it. Um, and I think they claim it's uh, it's in place to protect their employees or protect themselves more likely from sexual harassment lawsuits um, because if people are not comfortable with the material that they're printing, it opens them up for to some type of liability. Interesting. I, I believe is the reasoning. Yeah, okay. But what that means is that there's so much space for them to say, this isn't okay, we're not gonna print this, we're just gonna say no. Understand Jackie Susan manage that way adult books don't understand Jackie Susan blah 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 hey oh wow oh, yeah hey thank you uh, so much to you the listener for listening thank you to Lucara Occulta for writing the theme song Pizzeria Fatale it's from their 2008 seven inch that came out on uh, what's it called TPV Records. And uh, it's out of print, but there's two on Discogs for a dollar each. Uh, so buy those. But those don't support the band. I don't even know who's in the band except for this guy, Maddie, that I know who owns a bookstore in New York City. So if you're ever in New York City, go to Book Row, buy some used poetry books uh, from Maddie and future guest Rancid Dave Morse. Um, and yeah, check that shit out. And then um, speaking of New York City, thank you to Tamara Santibanez, my friend and the guest. It was a great interview. Tamara has a show up right now at um, JTTNYC uh, in the back room of her landscape paintings, which are these close-ups of um, like crinkled and folded leather that she painted. One of them looks like my dog's head, my girlfriend pointed out. And um, yeah, I don't know. Shit is tight. Support artists and uh, do stuff in person. Get off the internet. Um, thank you also to X. Uh, I'm sorry for singing your song in a Mark Your Moan voice. I wasn't... I wasn't making fun of you or Marky. I love both of you. Um, uh, no thank you to Exine's current politics, but uh, let's not linger on that. Uh, serious no thank you to the Supreme Court, to ICE, to um, the fucking shutdown government that is depriving people of food stamps and housing vouchers. Uh, 
we live in a moment of intense crisis and um, I am oftentimes at a loss as to what to do. I, I do some uh, kind of more adult anarchist activism, but uh, I don't know if you have ideas about how to be more active at this time, please let me know. I'm always interested. Um, you know, fuck the cops, fuck the government, fuck the army, um, fuck ICE. Did I say that already? You can't say that enough times. And um, that's it. Uh, no cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. I'm out.